Hildy is a body, chain-smoking, 70-something former journalist who lives on the Upper West Side in an apartment that has a portal back to 1973. Time travel has rules, though, and Hildy breaks them by traveling back with slacker healthcare aide Trista. Now, both women will have to come to terms with their pasts before they lose their chance at having a future. From Ahoy Comics comes Elisa Quitney's Guilt, that's G-I-L-T, a comic book that's Sex in the City meets The Golden Girls by way of The Twilight Zone. Grab a copy today from your local comic shop or your local bookshop, or you can get one by visiting alisaquitney.com guilt, that's G-I-L-T, or of course you can get one from the big online retailers, and I've put a link in the show notes to make the whole process easier for you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDormand. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about The Frost Giant's Daughter by Robert E. Howard. And this story has a pretty complicated publishing history. It, it is a Conan story, I should say, but it was never actually published as a Conan story during Howard's lifetime. And the version that Brandon and I have read. This is in the scholarly editions of Howard's texts that are published by Del Rey. This one is in the volume, The Coming of Conan the Chimerian. And so really just what I'll say at the top of the show about you know when this story was written, which is something we always try to say about every story we're covering, is that it was written around 1933. And it is the second Conan story that Howard wrote, uh, the second prose story that features Conan, maybe is the, the better way to put that. It's a pretty slight story. It's actually the shortest Conan story. And there's not a lot of thematic meat here, uh, certainly not compared to the other Conan stories that we've covered on the show, but still, it's a pretty fun romp. There's some beautiful descriptions. I'm excited to talk about it. So, Brandon, why don't you uh, take us through the plot? The Frost Giant's Daughter opens near the end of a grueling and gruesome battle that has taken place uh, on the ice fields. This ice field is strewn with dismembered bodies of the dead and dying, while two lone figures stand upright, facing off against one another, quote, as ghosts might come to a tryst through the shambles of a dead world. One of the men left standing is named Heimdall. He wants to know the other man's name so that when he kills this other man, Heimdall's brothers can greet him, the other man in Vanheim. Now, the other man is offended by this, and look, it's it's Conan, uh, because Conan knows he's going to kill Heimdall and send him to Valhalla, send Heimdall to Valhalla instead of Vanheim. So Conan, at least, part of this battle for him is caught up in some sort of religious conflict here with uh, what we learn are red bearded men versus blonde men. Conan's probably fighting as a mercenary though, because he's from Cameria. He's got black hair. Anyway, 
Conan and Heimdall clash, and it's a close fight, but Conan comes through as the victor. He is badly wounded, though, and he's got a little snow blindness, which, uh, let me tell you from experience, is genuinely terrible. And Conan has also probably got a concussion, but the point is that his vision is muddled and he can't see too well. Yeah, I actually remember when you got that snow blindness. That happened when we were both living in Colorado. And I, I wasn't present for it. And I think, were you doing Grays and Torres that day? Is that I was. I did Grays and Torres, and then I took a, like a week off of work shortly after that. Yeah, I think, if I recall correctly, what happened was we were supposed to be drinking together that night with some other people. And you were just like, I can't, I can't come out. I don't know if I'm going to survive. That you were, you were really messed up. And I, I've not ever had the snow blindness, but I have gotten serious snow burn. I mean, one of the worst sunburns I've ever gotten actually came from sunlight reflecting off of the snow. That, in fact, happened right around where this story takes place, which is to say it was in Norway. It was in uh, Jotunheim National Park, where actually I was carrying around with me uh, on a week-long backpacking trip I was doing there. I was you know, carrying along with me uh, another one of these Del Rey Art Robert E. Howard books. It wasn't this Conan one. It was the the horror collection of uh, Robert E. Howard. Ah, and so, right. um, but I, so there was one Conan story in there. And then I actually had another sword and sorcery collection edited by David Hartwell that also had a Conan story in it. So I feel like I don't know. Somehow this is following me around as as well. Some kind of some kind of curse that's been put on us uh, by Robert E. Howard or Conan or perhaps both. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, what I want to say is that yeah, you and I both have a little bit of experience of you know what it is like to have too much light reflecting off of the snow, I think that there's a lot of verisimilitude to what Howard writes, even though I don't think that Howard himself ever actually had such an experience. I don't know that Howard you know, got far enough away from Cross Plains, Texas to really experience this sort of thing. But nonetheless, he describes it in a way that I think really felt like you know, how I had experienced it as well. And let me just give some examples here of how Howard does describe this. Here's one thing that he writes. He says, The bleak, pale sun that glittered so blindingly from the ice fields and the snow-covered plains. And, and that sentence, it goes on for a while. But I just want to emphasize here the verb glitter rather than what I think probably most people would use there, which is shine. And I think glitter, though, is the better verb. I think it's more precise than shine, for one. But I think it also gives the reader the sense that there is you know, something precious and maybe even magical about this landscape. And I, I really like it. It's great. This is the most grounded part of the story. Actually, all of the descriptions of this uh, ice field of this near Arctic landscape are really strong. It's really the best part of the story. The best feature of the story is the writing around this stuff because it does feel really real. The snow does glitter in an icy area or a place where the the snow is compacted and there's a sheen of ice over it. If you're hiking, you know, stuff gets kicked up in the air and the sunlight gets filtered through the the crystals and the snow and it's just a it's a beautiful thing, but yes, it does blind you and it does give you third degree sunburns if you're not careful. That's what happened to me on Grace and Tories. And it's, uh, I just can't imagine Conan, you know, like swinging a sword without a shirt on in this type of environment. I don't think we get uh, too strong a description of what he's wearing, but uh, hopefully he's wearing furs because otherwise his whole body would be, would be burnt with uh, the snow, the sun reflecting off the snow. 
Yeah, he also would be cold. So I think, you know, probably he's wearing, he's probably got a coat on. Well, as he's trying to recover from this battle, remember, he's like near death here. He hears a, quote, silvery laugh cutting through his dizziness. And suddenly he can see a woman standing in front of him. She's naked, uh, wearing only a gossamer veil over her ivory-like body. Uh, She's got nice feet too, if you're into that sort of thing. And her laugh and smile aren't actually drawn from like a a fountain of kindness and mirth, right? There's wickedness behind her expression here as she gazes at Conan. And Conan wants to know who she is, naturally. He assumes she's of veneer, uh, but she doesn't give him a direct answer about where she's from. Conan really wants to know, though, if she's from Asgard and therefore a friend to him, or if she's from Vanaheim and therefore a foe or enemy. Conan swears by Ymir while he's uh, talking to her, while he's sussing out who this woman is. And this is where she gets a little bit ornery here. And then she chides Conan for coming up to adventure in a place that he has no business being. Yeah, something we should make clear here is that this is definitely set in some kind of fantasy version of Norway, or maybe it even just is Norway. We'll, we'll talk about that a little bit more in the discussion. We're getting all of these names that are familiar to people who you know, have any interest in Norse mythology or, I don't know, have watched a Thor movie, I guess, right? You've encountered these names, Heimdall and the Aesir and, and, and so on. And I don't want to spend a whole lot of time you know, trying to explicate what each reference here is. I think one of the things Howard is doing is kind of just trying to paint a bit of a, a picture here to use these these proper nouns to make sure that we all understand the type of environment that he's envisioning and also the type of people that he's envisioning. But I do think it is worth pausing here to talk briefly about you know where this story is in the writing order of Conan stories. And as I said at the top of the show, it is the second Conan story. We have covered the very first Conan story as well. That's called The Phoenix on the Sword, although we did that a long time ago, four or five years ago, and we did do it on, on Patreon, so not everyone has heard that episode. But that story imagines Conan as a Roman emperor. Uh, I mean, just like you know, not not even thinly veiled. He just is a Roman emperor. But now here in this story, he's fighting battles in Norway as part of somebody else's army, which, you know, that might be kind of confusing. So that is something that we will take up in the discussion as well. Yeah, it is a strange move to have Conan, you know, adventuring in somebody else's land, though he does do that a lot. But we know he's like from somewhere near the equator or something like that, like definitely a much warmer climate. So this would have been a huge journey for him, or you get the sense that it would have been a huge journey for him. So while Conan and this woman are verbally sparring, uh, Conan really begins to feel the need for medical attention. He's recognizing his wounds here. Maybe the shock has worn off a little bit. So he asks if, you know, maybe they could Please stop flirting and head to the woman's village. The woman says that uh, her village is further than Conan can walk, but that he should be able to rise and follow her anyway because, you know, she's really cute and mostly naked, and that's a, it's a motivator for Conan. His other option, 
instead of following her, is just to lay down and die in the snow. So the woman sets off, and Conan does chase her, uh, which has a sort of soothing effect in that it causes him to forget his injuries and the battle and the dead. Uh, So there's this mystical, maybe, element to this woman's presence here. Now, if you like descriptions of snow and ice, this is the section of the story that's for you. It's a big chunk of the story, uh, but I'm going to skip us along (laughs) to the action. So after chasing the woman for a while, the woman stops and calls for her brothers to kill Conan, take his heart, and then place his steaming heart on their father's food board. Uh, So now, believe it or not, Conan has got to fight some ice giants. And he does this, and he wins, uh, because he's a barbarian, and he rolls a high roll in order to access and use his blood rage to kill these giants. Right. I mean, that is basically what happens here. I mean, this is a pretty classic Conan fight scene. It really is the stuff that D&D is made of, for sure. But the reason I really want to pause here, Brandon, is that I I am that person who wants descriptions of snow and ice. I mean, want isn't even the right verb there. I think yearn is uh, is the verb that I should use there. And I I think a lot of these passages are just awesome. I'm going to read really just one of them into the microphone. And that's me, you know, restraining myself here. (laughs) And for people who have the text on hand and are, are following along with us, this is on page 34 in that Del Rey edition. The land changed. The wide plains gave way to low hills marching upward in broken ranges. Far to the north, he caught a glimpse of towering mountains, blue with the distance, or white with the eternal snows. Above these mountains shone the flaring rays of the Borealis. They spread fanwise into the sky, frosty blades of cold, flaming light, changing in color, growing and brightening. Above him, the skies glowed and crackled with strange lights and gleams. The snow shone weirdly, now frosty blue, now icy crimson, now cold silver. What I really love about this passage is the way that Howard is ascribing so much verbal agency to really what is just effects of of light or using effects of light to give agency to the things that the light is emanating from or reflecting off of. It makes the landscape itself not just mysterious, but almost kind of menacing And this gives, I think, a real sense of danger and adventure that goes beyond even just saying, hey, it's, uh, you know, it's cold up here and that could be perilous, right? That it gives this sense that just something supernatural is happening in this landscape, even though we know that everything that's being described here is actually just perfectly natural. It's just phenomenal writing. It builds such a great mood. It gets you on edge. It really gives us the sense that Conan is out of his element, which is like, you know, a major part of this story. But that that deepening sense that, you know, there's this strange woman, he's dying from wounds in the battle, but something mystical is happening. And so the descriptions of the landscape really serve that. And it's it's a great technique on Howard's part. All right. Well, back back to the story here. It turns out that uh, this woman wasn't expecting Conan to kill her brothers. And uh, that makes sense, right? You don't lead people into a trap expecting them to escape it. So she tries to run away from Conan, and she's no longer laughing like a sprite or a witch or whatever sort of thing laughs wickedly. Uh, Like I said, she's really full of wicked laughter and smiles in this story. 
But Conan does gain on her. He eventually tackles her, and then he tries to rape her. Uh, she prays to Emir to be rescued from Conan. Emir hears her prayer, and in uh, Deus Ex Machina intervention, the woman is taken away in a flash of blinding light, and Conan is left alone in the snow, and he loses consciousness. But soon he hears a voice saying, He's coming to Horsa. Uh, that's my that's my northern man uh, voice for people who are wondering. Uh, but at least two folks. I think there's kind of a group here. Uh, but at least two folks here who are allies of Conan and of Valhalla have found Conan after following his tracks that have led away from the battlefield. Conan tells this these men, this group, that he'd seen a woman who was quote as beautiful as a frozen flame from hell. And he followed her away from the ice field. Now, one of the men that's found Conan thinks that maybe Conan's gone mad in the cold and snow, like like hypothermia. Conan thinks that it's totally possible. But the older man who is with the search party tells Conan what he thinks has happened. The girl that Conan has seen and chased was the daughter of Ymir, the frost giant. She comes to the fields of the dead and only shows herself to the dying. Then she taunts the dying to follow her so that her brothers can kill or finish off whomever she's ensnared in order that Emir might eat the steaming heart of her victim. Now, everyone listening to this old man tell this tale thinks that this is a mad type of story. But for Conan, it has the ring of truth. And he acknowledges that what he went through was pretty strange and pretty close to what this old man has told. Then he realizes he still has something in his hand from this vision, whatever he just went through. He'd torn the veil of Gossamer from the Ice Princess, and that's what's in his hand. And now he reveals to the search party that he holds it still. And this is where the story ends. Strangely, this is the second Conan story in a row that features a, was it all just a dream bit? <laughs> so, you know, it's something of a motif here in these first two Conan stories. It it does go away. And in fact, I don't know if Howard ever actually uses that again in any of these Conan stories, but it is something maybe that we'll want to think about as we discuss Howard's world building. But before we move into the discussion, I, I want to follow up on something that we talked about a few episodes ago. I had made a point of thanking people for spreading the word about the show. And then when I was editing that episode, it occurred to me that, hey, maybe the reason that we've had such a sudden increase in downloads is that people have been writing reviews. And of course, right, we have promised that when we get to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts, we will do a bonus series on Lovecraft's best known story, right? The Call of Cthulhu, which we're going to air here on the main show as a just a bonus, a thank you for everyone. And then I thought, oh, uh, yeah, maybe we've actually owed that to listeners for months because I have not been checking. I did go check. We don't. We haven't hit that goal yet. But we would love to. We would love to do five or six episodes on The Call of Cthulhu. And if that is something that you know you would also like to hear, but you haven't written a review of the show on Apple Podcasts yet, now would be a great time to do that. We really value your support however you can support the network but one of the things you know apart from uh the patreon support that we 
really need your participation in is writing these reviews. So we hope you'll pause the show real quick before we get to the discussion. Write us a review of the show or rate us on Apple Podcasts. It just helps us so much. It helps us break into some of that, you know, those SEO barriers and just uh, when people search, we'll be higher in the search rankings. It's all how the sausage is made stuff. But if you like the show and you've been wondering how you can help us out, writing a review is something you can do on Apple Podcasts. So uh, yeah, take a moment to do that and then come join us for the discussion. Yeah. And look, we know it's a pain to write the reviews. I mean, before you know, we started podcasting together, I had written a review for only one of the hundred or so shows that I subscribe <laughs> to. I mean, I didn't even write reviews for shows that I supported on Patreon, right? It was easier, you know, for me to give financial support than it was to take the time and energy to, you know, do a, a review, right? And I think that's how most people feel about it. But yeah, now that I'm on the other side of it, I, I do realize how important those reviews are for the longevity of shows that I like, because it really is actually difficult for, you know, shows that are just, you know, two clowns in their basements with some microphones to, <laughs> you know, get past all the like glossily produced shows that get promoted on the the podcatchers. And so we do hope that, you know, throwing in a bonus series will encourage people to take the time to help us out with that. We really do appreciate it. And of course, we're also super excited about doing another bonus series on Lovecraft. But yeah, let's move into the discussion here. As I said at the top, you know, by Conan's standards, this is really quite a short story. It really doesn't have a whole lot going on. It, in fact, it doesn't really even feel like a complete story to to me, to be honest. I mean, the plot is just that, you know, a dude follows a mysterious woman for a while and then fights some giants and passes out and then his buddies find him and, you know, he has some clothes in his hand, right? That's what the, the story is. So really what I want to focus on is the world building, because I think that that's what Howard was up to when he was asking himself the question of what do I do next with this character? But I do want to actually start by thinking about the world without respect to that character, without respect to the fact that this is a Conan story. I don't really want to, yet anyway, try to link it with the Phoenix on the sword. So I don't think I'm going to you know, shock anyone here when I say that you know, Howard has set this story in pre-modern Norway, and he has imagined that elements of pre-Christian Nordic religion really exist in the world. And of course, there is a big element in our contemporary pop culture that does exactly this as well. And what I'm talking about here is the MCU and also, of course, the comics that, you know, that the MCU <laughs> itself is is based on. And then Tolkien also has done a version of this. I mean, it's very, very different what he does, but he's done a version of this. And Tolkien has also just sprung back into screen pop culture in a big way. And so just to get us into talking about this story, Brandon, I, I wonder if, you know, you like Howard's way of doing this more or, or, or less than Tolkien and the MCU. Uh, and of course, I will say, you know, the MCU is a more direct comparison, but just, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, what are the sort of pros and cons, I guess, really, of the way Howard does this? It's strange to bring in these sort of established mythologies into building your own mythos, but I like it. I always like it. So I like the way the MCU does it, though, um, you know, that has its own, I mean, that would be a whole other episode if, you know, we want to talk about the MCU. So maybe I won't. Um, but I do like the, at least the first Thor movie uh, quite a lot and the way they handle this, you know, stranger in a strange land type of story and uh, the use of this mythology uh, of Valhalla. 
I'm going to say something, Glenn, that might surprise you. Uh, I have been watching a show with with my wife in the evenings. It's an old show, maybe 10 years old at this point, from 2013 called The Witches of East End. Uh, that was a show that was on Lifetime. It stars Juliette Binoche, among other people. Uh, and it really should have been called Witches from Asgard. Because it turns out they're not witches. They're all immortal Asgardians who have been cursed in various ways, who are living in Massachusetts and have decorated their homes very nicely. And it's a delightful show. But as soon as this Asgard stuff popped up, as soon as they started talking about Asgard and Valhalla and Odin and all of these other weird things that are going on, uh, I was like way more tuned into the show than I was when I thought it was just a weird take on um, witches from Salem. Oh, that's awesome. I had never heard of that show. I, I, you know, of course, we could talk about American Gods as well, which you and I know is a novel. I'm not sure that either of us has actually I watched that show. show. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't even know if Brent has, even though, you know, he and I do a new game and <laughs> podcast together. Though, of course, someday we will watch that show whenever we get around to doing American Gods. And actually, I guess also Stargate has some stuff with this in it too, but right, I, I kind right. of forget to think about Stargate sometimes. But uh, yeah, this is a big thing, right? Uh, Norse mythology, you know, exists in our pop culture in a big way. And and I will say that I I think I like Howard's form of world building here at least a little bit, maybe even a lot bit less than you do. Uh, in fact, I'm on team Lovecraft here. Lovecraft famously wrote a letter in which he, you know, complained about Howard's use of real earth stuff in his fantasy world, although his fantasy world, you know, is actually prehistoric earth, but nonetheless, you know, Lovecraft wanted him to maybe make up some names, you know, like make a lang- make up a language that's similar to Old Norse and use those names and so on. And I, I do find myself on team Lovecraft there. But still, I love Norse mythology. I actually quite love Scandinavia. I've been there a few times. I think it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, especially you know, wilderness hiking. I absolutely love it there and love to envision, you know, while I am out in that wilderness that, well, I'm having maybe not the exact adventure that Conan has in this story, but something similar. You know, anytime there's fog, I really just, you know, kind of hope there are white walkers that are going to emerge out of it or something <laughs> like that, you know? And so I'm always excited to have a, a story like this. And I do think that there is a lot of utility to what Howard does here when he brings these names in just as a shortcut, because his audience in his own day, but I think also for us too, that we've all grown up with some of these stories in our story toolkit in some way. And so just the names themselves can conjure up these images and and senses and expectations that really do most of the heavy lifting for this story. And I, I think it does work really well. What I think works best about it is the same thing that, that the way like Asgard and ancient aliens function in Stargate, which is it, it it's a reminder. And I think the more Conan stories I read, the more this works for me, but it's a reminder that this is taking place on our earth. This isn't a secondary world. This isn't, uh, you know, another planet. There's you know, whatever's going on here. This is a civilization before any civilization that we know about. That's what you mean by prehistoric, right? It's it's it's, it's pre our history. So I think that works. I think if Howard had developed this a little more clearly, it would have been one of the strongest elements of his world building, that this stuff is real, that there is an Asgard, that, you know, there are these other elements, that all of these things about our Earth 
now that we refer to could have been discoverable thousands, tens of thousands of years ago. And I really love that concept as building a world. Um, but yeah, he doesn't examine it really on that level all too, all too much. No, he doesn't. But I think that that stuff is super cool too. And and Howard never made a- any kind of map, but it's something that fans have done. And I, you know, it's the sort of thing that I I would have done too if I had encountered these stories more prevalently, more forcefully when I was in junior high than I than I did when I was you know steeped in Poe and Lovecraft for sure. I would have also been trying to map all these locations onto the real world. You know, I would have had a cork board out with strings going everywhere. I mean, it would have been it would have been an amazing spring break of eighth grade or something like that. And I just love the, the that we get the chance to do that here. And yeah, we do know from Phoenix on the Sword that Conan does live on Earth. And you know, most of his stories take place in the Mediterranean and European worlds, though you and I have also visited Sub-Saharan Africa with Conan. But that is all set tens of thousands of years before the arrival of Indo-Europeans in either India or Europe. And as I've said, this is the second Conan story, though it was not published the way that Howard wrote it until the 1970s. But it is the second Conan story. And I think that that's fairly confusing because, you know, you can imagine reading the first story and Conan is a Roman emperor and he's also like an aging Roman emperor who sometimes has to fight demons and then you get this next story where he's like a mercenary in someone else's army in Norway and not in antiquity but seemingly in the middle ages and you know I think a question one might ask is how did that happen how did we get from there to here and I just wonder how this shift works for you, Brandon. Did you, I know it's been a long time since we've even done the Phoenix on the Sword, but did you have any kind of anxiety, any sense of displacement or any sense of confusion at this seeming jump of in, in both setting and time? I don't think so. I think because of the way that Conan is um, present or like instantiated in our culture, that you primarily think of him as this wandering barbarian mercenary errant knight type of thing that actually the most whiplash I felt reading Conan stories was with the Phoenix and the sword, not with something like frost giant's daughter or queen of the black coast, because that's the one that feels least like Conan in popular culture. And so, yeah, I, I just, to me, it didn't even really phase me that, Oh yeah, of course he's a, uh, of course, he's on some kind of adventure in a strange land. That's what Conan does. Oh, I agree completely. I had never read The Phoenix on the Sword until we covered that. And I was shocked to discover that the very first appearance of Conan on page has him doing paperwork in an right. office, you know, <laughs> and complaining about it. He doesn't really want to do paperwork. He wants to, you know, fight ice giants. But, you know, nonetheless, he's doing paperwork. And and yeah, you know, that's us, of course, coming, as you say, with a lot of pop culture baggage, right? You know, from Arnold Schwarzenegger and comics and, uh, well, just other stories. I had read other Conan stories, but just never The Phoenix on the Sword. And so, yeah, this felt actually kind of more like a Conan story to me than Phoenix on the Sword did. But certainly reading them in order, I do find that, uh, you know, find this move to be really jarring here more the, the the geographic move than i think the the temporal move but this is something i really really appreciate about conan is that that 
Howard did not write these stories in chronological order. We don't start with the origin story of Conan and then follow him until he becomes the Roman emperor as he's older and then follow, you know, whatever that story is. That instead, what we get is Howard just envisioning this character and coming up with interesting adventures for him to have, maybe some of those ideas starting with an interesting setting in which to place that story, and then saying, who and what do I need Conan to be in this story? Okay, at what time in his life could he have been that? Great, that's what we'll do. So these stories just kind of happen in random order. And I really, really like that. You know, we don't live in a magazine world like this anymore, but we kind of live in a TV landscape where someone could do a Conan show like this. I I guess you'd have to do a lot of makeup with your actor. Like, you know, (laughs) one episode, he's 65 years old and a Roman emperor. Next episode, he's uh, 22 and in furs in, you know, the frozen North. It would be an expensive show to do, I guess. But I would just love something like that, that just gives us this kind of jarring jumping around in, uh, you know, one character's timeline like this. I think I would find that refreshing. It would be really cool. It reminds me of something like what was done with Hercules, the legendary journey. I mean, they don't they don't start with him as like an old man, but that type of adventure show could totally be done with Conan, that sort of just iconic character in different settings, like we see, you know, with Star Trek, with um Stargate to some degree, though that has much more of a focus on on story arcs as the seasons go on. But yeah, just this this type of story that you don't have to worry about all this continuity and all these things that are going on, which readers have been kind of trained to expect thanks to the internet to some degree. Um, instead of just getting, I like this muscly guy swinging a sword and I want to read more stories about him. I don't need an origin. I don't need any of that stuff. He can do anything and be anywhere. And I just want to see this character do whatever he wants in the world, in whatever world the author places him in. And um, yeah, it's tough. I mean, the story really has me thinking about just the the lack of need, the, the ability for a reader to just take the character as they are and where they are. And so the lack of need of that um, dramatic origin story in or that builds the iconic character, or maybe even the lack of need for some kind of um, even interior continuity between the stories. And regular listeners to this show know that my favorite non-speculative fiction type of literature is hardboiled detective literature. And that is, you know, the best-selling literature of the period in which Howard is writing these Conan stories. And Conan feels an awful lot like a hardboiled detective in in a lot of ways, but this is one of them, right? Where your job as a, a detective story or crime story writer who's trying to make it by selling stories to magazines, you know, your goal is to come up with an iconic detective character who's going to have a different adventure every month or every other month. But you don't worry about the timeline or, you know, where these things are set. I mean, your detective probably has a home base, but you can send your detective off, you know, on missions and sometimes even end up overseas doing spy type stuff, you know, and that sort of thing. This is, you know, everything that's going on in, in the black mask magazine at the same time. And I think Howard is taking a cue from that. And I really like that Conan kind of feels like, you know, he's it's sword and sorcery for sure, but he feels really like a hard boiled detective in some ways as well. And I just miss this kind of, kind of storytelling. I wish we could bring it back. 
Yeah, I mean, he's got a problem with a dame, and she's got some thugs <laughs> that are protecting her, and you know, it's all it's all there. And he, you know, definitely crosses the line in terms of uh, civility. I actually have a question for you, Glenn, about the the use of the Deus Ex Machina in the story when Emir saves his daughter from being, you know, raped by Conan. It seems as though this is the first time I've encountered the use of the deus ex machina that rescues the hero in a sense from becoming a a villain. And I don't know if I have a question, but that really, it was so strange to me to see the use of this device, this plot device. Yes. It's there to rescue the, the, the victim of Conan, but really it feels like it's more there to rescue Conan from being viewed as a, as a kind of villain in his own story. So wh- I don't know. What did you make of that? This is a great question. And I, I, I feel like I kind of want to punt a little bit just to say I would like to read more Conan, you know, it, sentence by sentence, page by page, the way that we do for the show to see if there really is more of this sort of thing. Because I, I don't really think of Conan as that good of a guy, <laughs> right? You right. Know? He's not, right? <laughs> yeah. He's and not. I think that yeah. that's, that's in there in the pop culture, even, you know, setting aside Robert E. Howard, I think that that's something that's picked up by other people who have written Conan stories, Lester Del Rey and uh, El Sprague de Camp and uh, Robert Jordan, for example. Uh, and I think it's there in the Schwarzenegger films as well. So I don't know if that was necessarily the purpose here, if that was what Robert E. Howard had in mind, you know, if that was the idea of trying to save Conan from becoming a villain here, but it certainly functions that way in this story. And I think it certainly functions this way for us as an audience, 90 years removed from this story. So I think I'll answer your question maybe by coming at it with a, just from a different angle entirely, which is that, you know, I think I said little offhandedly earlier that this didn't feel like a complete story to me. And that this is actually one of the ways that this doesn't feel like a complete story to me is it feels like this is a character being kind of whisked away from a dangerous situation precisely so that she can reappear somewhere else, right? This is a kind of, uh, you know, regroup and come back to face Conan another time. This really felt like the end of the first act of a much longer story in which really she's going to come back with a literal vengeance, right? Yeah. Uh, on, on Conan and that there, there should be more to this story. That was really what I thought was happening with this plot device. Though, of course, there's no textual evidence to suggest that Howard intended to write more of this. It feels like a, a prologue because there's so much table setting of where we are, who the players are, what the setting is like, you know, who the merry band are, who the villains are going to be, why they're a villain. All of that is prologue stuff. And you're absolutely right, I think, to point out that there should be a second and third act to this story, or maybe even a true first act after this prologue. It feels like a, a a cold open, you know, no pun intended. <laughs> no, it does. You're right. Exactly. This feels like, yeah, the first 10 minutes of a Bond film or something like that. And I, I would love to encourage our, our readers to take this as a prompt. And, you know, what is what is the next story? What, what happens next? What's the rest of this story? I would love to read that. And I think that's actually a great note on which we can close out this episode. So that is going to do it for us today. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. You can find us and all our other shows at claytemplemedia.com. And please review us on Apple Podcasts, particularly, or if you don't want to go there, wherever you get your podcasts from. Yes. And as we said, when we get to 100 reviews on Apple Podcasts, we will do five or six episodes on 
H.P. Lovecraft's The Call of Cthulhu. It's something we would be so excited to do, and uh, we hope that you, the listeners, would be excited to to have show up in your uh, your feed. And this is getting close to it for us for 2022. It's going to be our last regular episode of the year. And so our next episode will be our 2022 year in review spectacular. And uh, it actually was a pretty spectacular year for the show. <laughs> We've got a lot to talk about there. I'm really, really excited about that. And I hope we'll see you all there. And until then, we greet you and say farewell.